Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Father Jared Kelly. Father Kelly is the former president of the Catholic Institute of Sydney. He's the editor of the Australian Catholic Record, and he's the chair of the Faith and Unity Commission of the National Council of Churches of Australia. Father Kelly has spent a lot of his career in the ecumenical movement in Australia, which is the movement that promotes unity between the Christian churches. And so with that as a background, we spoke about the Reformation, which was the split that occurred between the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church in the early 16th century. We spoke about some of the theological issues that underpinned that split, in particular justification and transubstantiation. And then we spoke about what the church is doing these days to promote that unity to try and achieve harmony between the two churches. But we started the conversation talking about Father Kelly's early years of spiritual development and his decision to join the priesthood. And so, everyone, thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Father Kelly, Mm -hmm. uh, the Reverend Professor Jared Kelly, Mm -hmm. that's... That's the official title, is it sort not? Sort of an official title. I have many official titles, depending on where I am. Right. So when I'm here, that's one of them. But uh, when I'm in parish on Sunday, people just say Father just Jared fun. or Father Kelly. Yeah. Or so. And is is the, I suppose just as a point of interest, is the rev, does the reverend always come before the professor? or Yeah, you normally, yes. Yeah. Normally. Yeah. And that's... Just, I, I suppose, know, just the way everyone does it. So, yeah, 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 just a yeah. just a sign of the importance of one. I suppose I never thought of it like that. But probably I, the Reverend became happened before the professor happened. So. Yeah, <laughs> right. So if it was the other way around, perhaps. still won't make any difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, so Father Kelly, I was wondering if you if we could start perhaps by you mm-hmm. sort of talking a little bit about your uh, your religious journey and how mm-hmm. you. Um, I guess, got into Catholicism sort of independently mm-hmm. um, and then what led you to um, decide to enter the priesthood? Mm-hmm. Um, 1986, was that when you entered? No, it would have been... Uh, no, I was ordained in 1980. 1980. Yeah. Okay. I went to the seminary, um, seven years, so it would have been, what, 74, I think. When you entered the seminary, yes, yeah. nineteen seventy-four, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, so, yeah. And so, what led to what led to that decision to go into the seminary? Oh, those decisions are always interesting decisions um, because you, uh, some people come to them, you know, later in life. I suppose this was something that was part of my thinking and upbringing from early stages in life. I don't mean by that that it was always something I was going to do. It was probably something I only really decided to do just in my you know final year or final two years of, of schooling. Um, but it comes out of, I think, um, my family context, um, what I was growing up in there. So I came from a family which was, was Catholic. I was baptised as a, as a baby. So grew up and went through Catholic schooling. Um, and I suppose there are some moments, if you like, that you can say these are important moments, not necessarily in terms of, you know, a vocation to priesthood, but just in terms of, you know, Christian faith, because uh, the decision to become a priest was in some sense about God. <laughs> Um, you know, that's why I wanted to be a priest, and in some sense of serving God, uh, which also meant serving God's people as well. But uh, but I'd, I'd think of things like um, when I made my first communions. I was in year one when I made my first communion, and um, 
One of the things that I think was really important about that wasn't just the fact of making a first communion, it was the sort of preparation I had for this and catechesis I had for this. And the, the teacher who was preparing us for this said, you know, when, when, you've, when you come back from communion, what you should do is just you just you know, kneel down and uh, talk to God as you would to, to your best friend. And uh, that's what I did. So I used to, you know, I'd talk to God and I'd, and all these people I had to pray for. So I'd pray for my parents and my sister and my aunties and uncles and grandparents and all those sorts of things and people who were in need. So, so that was sort of a habit I had that, you know, going to Mass and Communion was really about this opportunity just to talk to God like you'd talk to a friend. So, so that, was, that was sort of, um, I suppose what that did was it, it actually sets up a relationship with God. And, and a very sort of... Personal, personal relationship. relationship. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. and, and, it's, and, that, and that personal relationship, with, I don't mean by that that you know, my whole, I was only thinking about God all the time. I probably only thought about, <laughs> about this when I went to communion. And then uh, the other thing I suppose which would have been significant is that um, I remember my father when I was young, you know, probably before I went to school, taught me to pray, say prayers, you see. So each night before we'd go to bed, we'd kneel down and he'd told me to, you know, he showed me how to pray. You know, we prayed for, you know, um, he always put himself last. So we prayed for my mother, then my sister, then me, then him. And then we'd say prayers for a few other people and, and that was it. So uh, so basically I, I learned to pray for other people and to be interested in other people. Um, and, and when you were... When you were sort of that age, could you see um, those those acts of prayer as having an impact on the way that you were were dealing with people in your life, or yeah, or the way things were happening to I, you? Or? I, I, well, I was going to say I don't think that's the way it works, but uh, perhaps to some extent it does. I mean, not not in those early days, but I, I suppose you're you're always conscious that. Um, God cares for people, so you could pray for someone who was sick, or you could, or you could look at someone's life and sort of say, you know, I think God was looking after them. You know, when when you know they they escaped from some injury or overcame some accident they had or something, and yeah. say that I think God was looking after them in their life. So uh, um, that was probably the limit of it, though. Um, I, I don't I don't sort of see this as um, it's it's like a lot of things in life when you you know. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You, you don't think these things through. You just do them. You know, it's only later in life that you can look back and say, you know, that this this was something that might have been significant for me. Yeah. So, in in terms of the thinking it through, when when you got a little bit older mm -hmm. and um, started to have ideas of entering the priesthood, mm -hmm. and I guess I guess you begin to start that process of thinking things through. Mm -hmm. um, what were the sort of ideas that you were really drawn to and thought, oh, that's, that's, a, really, that's a really powerful idea and, and that's, that really yes. draws I, I, me yes. in? I, I'm not sure that it's about ideas even at that stage. It's, it's, it's more intuitive than that. Um, I mean, it will become ideas later on and, and, uh, um, and maybe ideas is not... not what you really want me to talk about, I don't know, but but it's it's um, it, it's something about a, you, you see a life. I mean, you see other people who are priests. You see a life, and you sort of say that looks good. Mm -hmm. That those people look happy, um, and this is something I could live. Mm -hmm. um, and you'd see it in different different ways. So so if I look at um, you know my later school years, for example, which were also fairly formative in, in making decisions. So uh, I, I remember, 
I, I was in you know YCS, which was the young Christian students, which was fairly strong at our school, and um, so we would have you know regular meetings, usually weekly at one stage, and and uh, and then we we had these camps during the school holidays, you know, for four or five days. And what was very interesting about that was is that they were all led by our peers. And it wasn't as though we had teachers coming in and doing things. We had our peers there talking to us. And I remember one one of these peers who was leading this, who was uh, someone who was a few years ahead of me at school, and that was where I got introduced to the, uh, to the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Um, the Second Vatican Council at that stage in my life seemed as though that was sort of a an eon ago, you know. When you look back at it, it was probably just um, not even ten years since it had finished. So. Yeah. But but uh, so I mean, my contemporaries, my classmates, and those of us in YCS were buying copies of documents of Vatican II and reading them, and and in particular, which is sometimes ironic maybe, but in particular reading about you know what it was saying about the laity and their role in the church and growing in holiness. So, so that that actually was probably formative in making decisions to become a priest, although it wasn't actually directed directed specifically at being a priest. So yeah, but the I suppose one of the things about Vatican II is sort of empowering the laity, mm-hmm. as you say, to mm-hmm. sort of um, develop their own holiness and. Mm-hmm be sort of vessels for mm-hmm. um, sort of Christian action. Sure, yes. Um, and so it sort of places the emphasis on the laity in that That's respect. Right. Yes, yes. Um, but you sort of see that as, as drawing you to the priesthood, which sort of... Is... Yes, but it, it's, it's all in the context of a, of a community of faith. Mm-hmm. So, so this is sort of another part of, the, if you like, the environment I grew up in. Um, the, the environment I grew up in was one that was about faith. Uh, let me make, make, a, make a, a contrast to you. Some years ago, since I've been working here, okay, um, someone... Sorry, um, uh, here being... Oh, here the... being the Catholic Institute of Sydney at Strathfield. Okay, so since my, I've been lecturing as a, as a lecturer in theology, okay, some, someone invited me to, to... One of our students invited me to, to, um, to his place for a meal. He was a married man, you know, wife and children. One child in, at that time, <clears throat> and um, during the, the conversation, he said, um, "When was your conversion?" Um, which was a very interesting question, and I had to think about that. And um, I sort of said, "Well, I mean, I was baptized as a baby. Um, I've been connected with the church all my life. I haven't sort of moved away from that, so I haven't thought of this as a conversion." Um, in the way that he was thinking about it. And, and I think that's... Uh, his question, in fact, was the right question for this time. Okay, because I think for lots of people, um, their engagement... I mean, even if I look at you know some students that, that I have here, their engagement is because they've had a, a conversion experience. Yeah, and, and sort of... Because that whole, that whole born-again idea has become yeah, quite prevalent. That's in, right, yeah. Perhaps yeah. not so much Catholic... Yes, but it's still there in some sense. People, uh, you know, they... they um, they lose connection with the church. Um, sometimes there might even be people who, you know, had grew up without any faith. There was no faith in their family or their environment, and uh, and they've come to experience that, and uh, um, and now they're looking to to understand that and to deepen that. So what, the, the point I'm trying to make to get back to me again we were, was that there was something about the era in which I grew up where faith was very much supported. Uh-huh. Um, it was odd not to have faith sort of as part of your life and recognised as part of your life, I think. most Not saying everyone had that, most people had that in some form or other. 
Um, so th- this this idea of you know distinguishing the, the clergy and the lady that's while that's very true um, and certainly the Second Vatican Council did do that. <clears throat> I, I think that my experience there in in, in in YCS was really about getting excited about you know just the things of faith uh-huh. because. Um, this was about living it. Uh-huh. And don't forget, at that stage, I am a layperson, yeah, <laughs> living yeah, all yeah. of this. So this is about living it. And, and at, at that stage, and, the, and there were actions. I mean, I remember we used to go to you know, visit people in hospitals and that sort of thing, among other things. <clears throat> so this was about living this. And I think as you as you lived it, then this desire to, to become a priest is, grows in that context. Grows in the context of this is... Sort of the best way for me to go out and live this faith. Yes, exactly. Be yes, a sort that's of right. Yeah. A servant of that's God. That's right. I, I can, I can, uh, I can give my life to this in in, in a way that, um, you know, is going to help people to 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 grow in this and live in this too. Yeah. So, the, so there wasn't a uh, sort of a bolt of lightning or a flash of light where you thought this is no definitely this. From now on, that like I'm definitely committed to this past, but it was sort of more like a gradual yeah, sort I of think evolution so, yeah. into. I, I, I'm, I'm not so, um, I suppose, convinced about bolts of lightning. I mean, we can read that in St. Paul, but uh, <clears throat> um, it, it seems to me that the the whole of our life is tied up in all of this, um, and and uh, even when even when we think that there's no connection, you know, what I'd want to say now, I'm. I'm Becoming a theologian now, but but what I would want to say is is that you know right from the very beginning, God is there whether we recognise God or not, um, and and part of life's journey is to you know look for where God is there. Now sometimes people aren't able to do this because they don't have the language to do it, they don't have the concepts to do it. Um, it's there, it's happening in their lives, uh, and uh, so so part of growing in faith is to to learn how to recognise where where God has been with you all of the time, not in extraordinary things, uh, but in in very simple things. You know, so um, you know if, if someone falls in love, they can say, you know, this this is this is actually of God. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't mean by they said that God made sure these two people met. But the, the fact that, you know, someone's fallen in love, you know, you can say, well, that's that's actually a gift of God. Just a, sort of a recognition of that presence of yeah, of yeah, God. Yeah. Sort of and, and and I think that often it's not not it's not even explicit sometimes. Sometimes it's implicit. And some people it never becomes explicit. And they, they sort of know have they have no explicit um you know, um, encounter with God. That doesn't mean God's not working in their lives. But some people, you know, at various stages in their life, they come to a point where this can become explicit and they can recognise it. And that's, I guess that would be, if you if you go from not recognising to recognising, mm-hmm. that's sort of the born again. Um, yes, it is. Yes, exactly. Conversion. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah. But, it, but even for people who... Um, um, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Even for people who who grew up in this environment and lived with this, uh, that doesn't mean that they haven't always recognised this. So, comment I made to you earlier about um, you know what I was taught when I received my first communion to talk to God as a friend. Uh, I couldn't have said that when I was in year one or two. Uh-huh. Mm. I can say that now because I can look back and say this has actually been important in my life. Yeah. Mm. So when. So joining the priesthood and when you started to, and perhaps even before you started to join the priesthood, um, and when you started to gain a, a proper intellectual conception of mm-hmm. um, what the church was 
and what it was teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, were there were there ideas then that you were started to be drawn to, or were you still just dedicated to um, that mission? Uh, yes. No. I I think that um, once I started to do my formal studies, I you know, had all sorts of ideas then, and and ideas that. Uh, some of which would have been quite new to me, but others which might have, again, been there implicitly, but I didn't quite understand them. So um, I, I think one of the important things was to, certainly to learn about the church, but to learn about the, the kingdom of God. Okay. Um, now, again, this is something that, you know, theologically I, my ideas of this have, have developed and matured over the years, but it just seems to me that that's... That's the key to this. And it was, it was also about learning how to read the biblical texts in an intelligent way um, that made sense of them um, and made sense of them almost, I suppose, because what you're dealing with there is you've got you know ancient texts and you're trying to read them in a modern or postmodern world. So there's all sorts of intellectual clashes that go on there. So how do you deal with that? And uh, so I suppose learning how to do that helps you to understand things like the, the kingdom of God. And what was Jesus about with his preaching? And, and uh, you know, here he is, this sort of, you know, peasant in a tiny little part of the world. You know, what difference does that make to, to my life and your life here now? You know? And so this might, be a, uh, this might be an unfair question to ask, but what, what would you say you've come to um, experience or know the kingdom of God uh, to be? Right, yes. I, I think the, the thing about the kingdom of God is, and if you look in the, the Gospels and Jesus talks about it in parables, which means that he can't talk about it at all. <laughs> or, or, or another way of saying that is is that it's many things. Okay, so, so uh, I think the kingdom of God is basically when, as it were, God has transformed the world. And... What what I I'm talking as a theologian now. What what I would say is is that with the event of Jesus, so with his death and resurrection, ascension, the sending of the Spirit, God has already transformed the world, but it's still being transformed because that that process isn't completed yet. So what what I, I try and look for are little glimpses or signs of what the kingdom might look like, um, and they can be massive things or they can be small things. You know, so. Um, um, something as small as a. Um, I saw someone last year, sometime it was, I was walking down Park Street in the city, and you know, there's a McDonald's there. I think it's McDonald's or one of those. And often there's a, a homeless person sitting out there on the, on the on the pavement, you see, and, you know, begging, and people normally walk by, and um, if they've got a bit of a conscience, they usually turn their heads so they don't see him. So they. <laughs> They have to Shield worry. their conscience. That's right, exactly, <laughs> yes. But I saw this young woman come out of there and she had a cup of coffee which she gave to him and she sat down and talked to him. That's a sign of the kingdom of God because, um, I mean, I could have walked past and thrown, you know, a couple of dollars in there, which is maybe a sign of the kingdom of God, but not like what that young woman did. Yeah. Because what she did was she engaged with someone. She saw that someone was important who most other people discarded, you know. Um, so that's that's a little sign of the kingdom of God, but it could be something like you know the the um, you know look at the 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 joy that you know comes to parents when a baby's born and how they watch the child grow. That's a sign of the kingdom of God, the love they have for, for that child. Um, <clears throat> or, or if you want to think on a bigger scale, you know what what about if um, 
if, you know, two warring countries work for peace. Mm-hmm. That's a sign of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Th- those sort of things seem to point to an idea of the kingdom of, the, of God as um, not so much intervention but um, requiring action, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, and I suppose we'll, we'll do, do a little shift here, and, and mm-hmm. this might be a good segue. One of your main roles has been um, your ecumenism mm-hmm. and um, working towards, I guess, unity between um, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran churches. Um, mm-hmm. In Australia, you're the uh, head of the... Um, I'm the co-chair of the Australian Catholic Lutheran Dialogue. Mm-hmm. So, so that puts you a in Lutheran chair too. Yeah, mm-hmm. in that in that position, you're working towards a sort of unity between mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. the, the Catholic and and the mm-hmm. Lutheran churches. Um, and one of the main, I guess, sticking points, or perhaps even the main sticking point that resulted in the separation of the two churches mm-hmm. um, after Luther posted his 95 Theses in 1517. Mm-hmm. Um, was the idea of justification, mm-hmm. um, and so what? What you're ta- and and the the Catholic idea and and stop me when I'm wrong. The Catholic idea was um, of justification was justification through through good works, and that's sort of what you were talking about before. So the kingdom of God becoming present through through someone. Um, doing something, I suppose, whereas the, the Lutheran idea is more um, justification through through divine grace. Christ alone. Through, through Christ alone. Faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. They're the slogans. Yeah. To go back a few steps, um, the justification, and, and you might be better at this than I am, I, I dare say you, you, you invariably are, um, is about how do we rid ourselves of sin? Would that be yeah, getting I mean, close I mean, to it? For Catholics, justification is difficult. Mm-hmm. As I've said to many times I've given talks on this, Catholics don't do justification. Mm-hmm. We do, but we don't call it that. Mm-hmm. So um, we're likely to talk about salvation or redemption. Um, I don't mean Lutherans won't use that language either. And um, what what we're dealing with is a dispute in the 16th century. So we need to remember what was it that sort of, you know, got Martin Luther all steamed up? Mm -hmm. Um, It was indulgences. So what were indulgences? Indulgences, <clears throat> and basically they were set up to help build a basilica. <laughs> Get some money. <clears throat> but indulgences... Good way to do it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But, but indulgences, and this, and this is the essential Lutheran suspicion mm-hmm, of, of, of you know, what Catholics would be doing, would be to say that I can earn my salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, that I think is... Um, in some sense, if you like, the Catholic temptation to think in those terms. It's bank account terms. You know, I, I can begin to earn it. Now, I don't know whether you, when you were growing up, ever heard that phrase or think in those terms, but there are whole generations of Catholics who say, I've got to earn my salvation. I'm going to do something in order to earn my salvation. Um, now, that's not actually what the Catholic Church thinks about this. Uh, this is 
you know, popular piety, if you like, which springs from certain teachings. But um, um, and and you know, Luther's right to to object to that. Now, you, you raise this in terms of my comment about you know the kingdom of God, which is which is perhaps unfair. No, no, that's. I think it's fine. I, I'm happy to because I think it's it's important. What we have to do is find out how do you talk about this. I said Catholics don't do justification. I remember some years ago I was invited. This is one of the first times I was invited to give a give a talk when I just come back from my theological studies, and uh, um, the, the, um, I was asked to give the, the Anglican Catholic Commission had just produced a document on this, and uh, so there was a priest in Australia who'd been on that commission and he couldn't give the talk, so he asked me what I do, what you see. So uh, so I had to learn up about justification because I don't, because the Catholics don't do justification. And so I thought I'd planned something that was very good and I get up there and away I'm sailing away and five minutes into the thing there's this elderly couple in the front rows and up goes the hand. And I said, yeah, well, yes, what's the question? What's justification? Got to take a few steps back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and my other story about justification is that in my first parish, I used to go to the once a week to the local state high school for catechetics. Catechetics, and there were you know various churches that went there. And anyway, one 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 week my car wasn't getting service, so I I didn't have my car. But the uh, the Anglican parish had a youth minister there, so he offered to drive me home. So I said, "That's fine." So we get in the car, and before we're even out the school gate, he says, "Where do you stand on justification?" Straight to the point. That's that's a real icebreaker. It is, yes, and. I don't even recall learning about justification. <laughs> so, so justification is one of those things, I suppose. That, uh, but it, ultimately, it's about you know, where do we stand with God, and how is it that we stand there? Okay, so where do we stand before God? Mm-hmm. And Luther's great insight into this was that um, we, we we stand before God uh, because of faith. Mm not because of anything we do or we've earned. We stand before God because God has done something. Okay. Now, I digress. Let me get back to my, my people outside McDonald's in Park Street. Uh-huh. What we can say there is, I'm sure that, I don't know that person who did that, but it's quite likely that person had no religious con- connotations to do that. <clears throat> but what I could say, I suppose, is that that's an action uh-huh, which... As I look at that from faith, we can say that this someone can do this because the Spirit of God dwells in them. Mm-hmm. Right. So even if it's not a, even if that person doesn't then go home at night and get down on their knees and and, and thank thank God for yeah. their divine presence in their life, mm-hmm. the act itself is an expression of their I think so, yeah. of their belief. Right. But let's let's presume that person does have faith. Okay, so this person that vision that which probably is a bit more helpful to this. <clears throat> that person can go home and say, you know, aren't I good? Mm-hmm. I've just given someone a cup of tea and I sat down and talked to a hobo in the street. Aren't yeah. I good? Um, now that to me, is not what it's about. Uh-huh. Um, it's If that person had, you know, out of a faith conviction, had simply, you know, taken time to be with that, you know, the person who was on the, sitting on the pavement, um, we said, this is what I do. Uh-huh. But I'm not doing this in order to be saved. Uh-huh. I do this because I am saved. Mm-hmm. So in other words, this, this grace of God, which is Luther's language, uh-huh, this grace of God empowers me to do that. And I suppose, as as a as a priest, that's sort of fundamental to your 
decision, I guess, to join to mm-hmm. join the priesthood. The, the the faith that is coming through your upbringing and through your convictions mm-hmm. lead mm-hmm. you to mm-hmm. to dedicate your life to the, to the service of God. Mm-hmm. But but but. Um, I don't think we should restrict this and say this is because someone has dedicated their lives as a priest or something. I think you can say the same thing about everyone. I mean, potentially everyone. I mean, you can say the same thing about married couples. I mean, I look around and see, you know, all sorts of people, you know, in living their Christian life and life in the church. They probably do it far better than I do. Yeah. You know? um, <laughs> that they have a, you know, they, they have a dedication to and and do it with, you know, far many more pressures on them than I have. You know, I, mean, I can wail about my pressures sometimes, but you know, compared don't, to yeah, others, don't sell yourself short. That's right. <laughs> so, so, uh, um, but it is. I mean, I think this is this. It, it, this is about how you think about these things and how you understand them. So, if if your starting point is that God is good and has blessed me with gifts, and those gifts enable me to to do these things, that's a very different starting point to say, you know. You know, I've just got to do something to placate God and keep him off my back. Yeah. Do, do you think in that um, in that sort of scenario there are people who who do say that, though, who say, oh, um, I, I guess, I, I guess, well, they, they might even believe with conviction. They might even say, I, I do believe, um, and then they see, the homeless person on the street, and they say, "Oh, I better go. I better go and help that person." They might, yeah. And but that's that's not really that's not really what the either the Catholic Church or the <coughs> Lutheran Church is. Well, for. I, I think that um, you know all of us would say that you know our faith is something which is lived and it's lived in concrete ways. You know, I think one of the the the, the dangers is. And, and in some sense, this is more a danger today than it was generations ago, I think, is that um, faith is simply an idea. Um, and, 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 I, and I think this is often the way it's portrayed in, in the society in general, that it's, that it's sort of a, an idea which doesn't really affect the way you live. It's just hocus-pocus or it's, you know, mythology or something. And uh, um, it's not true, um, but it's not. I, I think that's missing the point of it. That it, it, it is actually something which shapes the concrete decisions that people make. Yeah, and that's. I suppose that's the the goal that the the churches are trying to get to of mm. shape, shaping the person to go out and do. Mm. So so whether you so whether you are justified through through the faith or through the act itself, it's. No, I don't see. I, 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 I don't want to put it that way because what I want to say is uh-huh, that you are justified um, by God, uh-huh, and therefore you can act this way. Okay, so you don't act this way in order to be right before God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what 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 we can say is that, the, in other words, the starting point is God. Mm-hmm. And the starting point is God's graciousness. The thing about Luther is, you see, <clears throat> Luther, you know, I suppose we said that I had a troubled conscience. Uh-huh. So how am I going to? How how am I ever going to be worthy to be saved? And then, as he reads Paul, you know, Romans and Galatians, but particularly Romans, <clears throat> he gets this insight that I don't have to do anything to be saved. God has already done that. Jesus died on the cross. Uh-huh. All I need to do is to believe that. And in, and in that. 
and in that act of belief, I guess you 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 become justified. saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. by grace through faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another another, uh, I suppose, sticking point between between the two churches, but something that you have sort of looked at quite substantially is the um, is transubstantiation, and mm-hmm. which is. Do you want to give us a quick a quick um, rundown <laughs> rundown on that? So. Um, Essentially, what we're we're saying, I think, transubstantiation says. Well, some, let's take a step back. What, what, essentially, what 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 this is doing is talking about the the um, the gifts of bread and wine. Okay, so when we celebrate the Eucharist, we have what we call the, the fruit of the earth and work of human hands, the fruit of the vine and work of human hands, and um, so they're the the things of creation. Mm-hmm. And what we what we say is that. We take those things of creation, these gifts of God, and through our prayer in the Eucharist, so the, the Eucharistic prayer, and in the Eucharistic prayer what we do is we um, recall and st- state the words that Jesus used at the Last Supper about when he took the bread and wine at the Last Supper, um, and we also call on the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. And what um, the, the point we, we, we say about all of this is that that bread and wine that we've taken, these gifts of creation, uh, God uses them to change them so that they become the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the the language we use, say, in our Eucharistic prayer, Let's just take the second Eucharistic prayer in the Catholic Catholic Mass. <clears throat> We'd say, you know, Lord, send your spirit upon these gifts so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're talking about is that the 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 um, the bread and wine have become the body and blood of Christ. Now, at different stages in the church's history, that um, that understanding has evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and at different stages, they've tried to resolve certain problems. So um, there was a first big problem, if you like, comes about the 8th century, which has its final working out by the time we get to the Reformation, by the way. Okay, so you, the question they're dealing with in, the, in the, um, the 8th century is, we've got the body of Christ born of the Virgin Mary and walking around on earth, Mm-hmm. We've got the body of Christ glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father. Mm-hmm. We've got the body of Christ in the Eucharistic bread on the altar. Mm-hmm. Are they the same? And if so, how can we talk about them being the same? Because um, even if you think of location, uh, what's on the altar here? Can we say that's, if it's on the altar here, how can it be in heaven at the right hand of the Father? So what they're trying to struggle with is how you can see the the connections between these three references to the body of Christ. Is it the same Christ? Uh Or is what we have on the altar simply something that reminds us of Christ, Uh who's now seated at the right hand of the Father, Uh, or who was walking around on the earth? Uh So... um, they struggle to find a way to, to contain all of this together and to affirm that there's an identity between um, the earthly Jesus, uh-huh, the, the Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, the glorified body, and the body of Christ on the altar. That, that is logical and the same. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that so that we can say that these these are identical. Okay. Um, so what they the breakthrough comes, and this is probably happening around about the 11th century, I guess, 12th century. <clears throat> that the and, and this is the time, by the way, when um, um, you know uh, Aristotelian philosophy has been rediscovered. Interestingly, through the Islamic scholars, but <laughs> so this finds its way into Catholic theological thinking. Uh-huh. Say, so let's just say Christian theological thinking, because there's no division at this stage. <clears throat> sort of no division yeah. <laughs> in, in the Western, Western Church. Yeah, in the Western Church. That's right. So, <clears throat> um, and what the the the, um, uh, the the word they recognize or able to use is the word substance. Mm-hmm. Now the word substance really refers to the, you know, to the, I suppose the the full being of something. Now this creates a problem for us today because the word substance actually means something different today to what it meant then. Mm-hmm. So um, if I ask you, what's the substance of the shirt you're wearing? Um, I don't know. What would you Polyester. say? Polyester. Polyester. <laughs> okay. Well, see, that's that's not going to help. Okay, because the substance of your shirt you're wearing is shirt. Mm-hmm. It's a shirt. You're, not, you're wearing a shirt. Uh-huh. Um, and the shirt has uh, material and matter, which is um, um, you know, polyester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you're wearing a shirt. Uh-huh. And, and the, 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 that's, the, that's the substance of, of what you're wearing. It's a shirt. Uh-huh. It's, it's what makes it what it is. So <coughs> in, in sort of that earlier Aristotelian idea, it's more the, the word substance is probably better translated today to the word essence. Yeah, that's probably a reasonable way of doing it, yeah. Now, we've got to be careful because we can get all sorts of um, complications that, that come in with this. <clears throat> By the time we get to the 16th century and the Reformation, that language is breaking down. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> what... The problem with polyester, by the way, is uh-huh, that you can only think of that in these very materialist concrete terms here you see mm-hmm. which is very hard how do you now um, affirm that the glorified body of christ in heaven um, is on this altar here in this church and that altar in the church down the road and that altar in the church next door you know next country and that altar in the church on the other side how do you say that so that the, 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 some of the the problems going on in the reformation then are, are not not all of them by the way okay because luther is certainly one person who does want to affirm the presence of christ in the eucharist yeah uh, in terms of substance now there's a few ways of doing that but um so where this heads is that there's a they sort of reject what was a false notion of substance anyway uh-huh um, so, so they being the Lutherans, not Lutherans, no, but some other reformers, right? right okay, right. yes, yes, yes. And Lutherans hold on to substance. You yeah. see? So Lutherans will want to to affirm the the presence of Christ in the Son. If you want to know an interesting story about this, the Lutheran Church in Australia um, came, of course, there's people migrating from from Prussia, and um, they migrated because they were facing religious persecution. Mm-hmm. And the religious persecution they were facing was um, that they were being forced to uh, to merge with um, some reformed Christians. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, as one of my Lutheran friends said to me, the Lutheran Church in Australia came into existence, people fleeing persecution. So they came here to in order to preserve the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
so what we're talking about is a change, but we have to be able to talk about this in such a way that it is intelligent uh-huh. and that we don't say that, you know, oh, Christ stops being in, seated at the right hand of the Father and comes down onto this altar here. Uh-huh. So how do we talk about this? Uh-huh. So certainly transubstantiation is affirming that the, 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 the body of Christ is, to use the language of that time, truly, really, and substantially present in the, in the bread and wine. Uh-huh. Now, one of the ways that the church has always done this, and this goes right back to, to the beginning, is to <clears throat> to talk about sacrament. Uh-huh. So what's a sacrament? I don't know what you would have learnt when you were at school, but you might have learnt that it's um, um, you know an, um, an effective sign of, of a reality. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> so what we can say is is that. Uh, um, we still have the signs of, of bread and wine, mm-hmm. but they have been transformed uh, so that the reality is is present, the reality of the body of Christ. Uh-huh. And in fact, this doctrine um, is such that, um, and, and the clearest example of this is Thomas Aquinas, where he, he would say that uh, <coughs> um, if... If if the, the 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 created material of bread and wine uh-huh, is is no longer visible, uh-huh, then we no longer have the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So to give you a, a very simple sort of example, let's imagine that <clears throat> we've had consecrated hosts in the tabernacle and no one's looked at them for some time, and when they open the door next time, they're all just decayed. They're the food does that. <laughs> um, we no longer have the body of Christ there, you see. There's nothing there. So <clears throat> this is dependent on the bread and the wine because they are now the sacramental signs that Christ is present because they have been transformed, changed into the body and blood of Christ so that the <clears throat> the substance of the body and blood of Christ has taken over those so that the bread and wine is now the sign, the guarantee we have that the substance of the body and blood of Christ is there. Now, this requires faith. So you might walk into a church, you've got faith, and if you're at Mass and the priest elevates the host, you'll reverence it and adore it. But someone who has no faith will will not do that. They won't know that. And if the priest was to lift something else up, um, you wouldn't adore that because you know that when you see this, that's the body and blood of Christ. This is the sacramental sign. Yeah. And so if, if we come back to the, um, the, the, the doctrinal differences in the Reformation, mm-hmm. um, you were saying that Luther, Luther wasn't that different to what the Catholic position was. Mm-hmm. Um, and from my understanding, his position was not um, transubstantial but consubstantial, mm-hmm. um, meaning instead of the the bread and wine becoming the body, uh, the body and blood, mm-hmm. the the bread and wine um, takes on the body and blood but remains bread and wine itself. <coughs> That's right. So what 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 he's saying is that uh, that. Um if you like, the, the body and blood of Christ is present in the bread and wine, uh, and if you like, the both substances are present. Still exist at the same That's time. That's right, yes, yes. So, so I think a, a lay observer these days, mm-hmm. and I, I mean myself as well, I think, would, would look at that, the, the, and the difference really there between sort of Luther's position and the Catholic position is the presence of 
bread and wine, mm-hmm. not the presence of the body and blood of Jesus. If if it was that, that it's a lot more um, sort of meaningful. But it's the presence of bread and wine, which is seemingly quite trivial, and yet it the difference you mean is trivial. The difference, yes, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And, but and that trivial difference seemed to contribute to the the split that happened. Um, and the only sort of rational way that I can think about as a reason for that occurring is that it is it is quite important. Um, and so I guess as a way to sort of realise why that was so important to people is to ask you how you see the the idea of transubstantiation playing out perhaps in your own experiences or perhaps as a priest how how people sort of engage with it. Okay, let me take a step back and say that um, for Luther, the, the really important thing for him was faith in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and he, he really wasn't concerned as how you explain that. He said you can't really... I mean, the Lutheran position, as you said, is consubstantiation, but um, they're not really interested in, in giving an explanation for that. They, they can believe that. that they, they will affirm that Christ is present in the Eucharist. Um one of the things I think that happens at the time of the Reformation is is that you've got two people fighting each other, so they both dig their heels in. Now, there are two, two, two things we need to consider. So one we need to consider is what's the possibility of some sort of um, you know reconciliation between the divided churches, which is not what you just asked me, by the way. But but the other one then is, what's all this mean for the Catholic Church? Okay. Um, now, there has been a lot of dialogue between different Christian churches, I mean, with the Catholic Church, but also among themselves as well, which has looked for ways to try and express this. Now, one of the ways they've tried to do this is to say that... Um, Probably for the first millennium of Christian history, we had a common faith in the Eucharist and we didn't use the word transubstantiation. It comes much later. Because the word the word transubstantiation doesn't then, come about until what the Fourth Lateran Council in yeah, 1215 sort of, or something like right, that. That's yeah. right, yeah. Well, at least in terms of official <clears throat> official teaching, that's right, yeah. So we've lived all this time. So is it possible to go back to the time before we're in dispute and see if we can find a common language in the heritage that we have, the tradition that we have, which might might be workable. Okay, and they're, they're doing that. Now, to get back to, to, to the Catholic thing then, um, I think the, the for, for, for Catholic people, the challenge is how do we understand this and how might we even learn from what's going on in those dialogues? Okay, Because one of the things that I think happened, um, and we're probably beginning to get out of this, but it's not quite out of this, is, is that... Um, by and large, Catholic understandings of the Eucharist are expressed simply in terms of the problems of the Reformation. Okay, so I would think that you know a lot of Catholics would have no, not much sense of a bigger theology or bigger understanding of the Eucharist than the problems of the Reformation. And even in terms of the problems of the Reformation, there were two problems with the, of the Reformation. So one was around presence of Christ in the Eucharist, transubstantiation, as you said. The other one's around sacrifice. So um, the, the mass as a sacrifice. That's right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so um, when I was growing up, we used to learn about both of those. I suspect that um, a lot of 
catechesis these days focuses on the presence of Christ, but doesn't even talk about the sacrifice. Okay, um, and if we go back to the you know our bigger tradition, if you like, um, there are other aspects of the Eucharist that are part of that bigger tradition. They all get integrated, but they're, they're part of that bigger tradition, I think. So one of the things I think that uh, <clears throat> has happened, I see sort of two strands in Catholic thought these days. I see one strand which is pretty ignorant of any of this and um, doesn't think in terms of the Eucharist, the way you've talked about it, um, you know, in terms of <clears throat> that Christ is truly, really, and substantially present in the Eucharist, um, but you know, it's something the community does. It keeps the community together. So why not? Uh -huh. Now I'm being a bit cruel and putting it that way, yeah. but I'm caricaturing it a bit. Yeah, yeah. So that's one sort of you know extreme, if you like. Uh -huh. I, I think another strand then is um, <clears throat> for people to whose Eucharistic um, piety and devotion is simply focused on on defending that doctrine. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying you can't defend that doctrine. I'm saying that there's a richer theology that, that that's there, which would be good for for people to have experience of and exposure to as well. That comes through that dialogue. Uh, yes, but I think I, I, one of the things that the dialogue has done, and it's not the dialogue's not the only thing that's done this, but uh, <clears throat> the, the method of the dialogue has been to, uh, you know, which was the method of the Second Vatican Council, to return to the sources. So <clears throat> if we go back and look at the sources of our Eucharistic theology, so I'm talking about, you know, the early centuries, uh -huh, we see a richness there that uh, that sometimes isn't uh, isn't much acknowledged today. Um, <clears throat> so... so <clears throat> I think the question for the future is, um, do we define ourselves and our faith, uh, as it were, against someone else? Uh -huh. um, now, it used to be against the reformers. I'm not quite sure who it's against now, but it could be against someone. Uh -huh. uh, or do we define it more positive, define it more positively, saying this is our, our rich tradition and uh, there are all sorts of possibilities that open up for us, which is not to deny those other dimensions, but it's saying that we can supplement that and say there's more to it than that. Yeah. And I suppose, as, as, in, in your opinion, would you ever see the, the, the division that has occurred um, reconciling? Another way of asking that is, would you ever see the, the Lutheran churches come back under a Catholic fold or under perhaps not a Catholic fold, but a unified church re-emerging that has... Um, sort of a, a single structure. Do, do you think that's a, um, a possibility? Yes. I mean, I, that has to be a possibility. We wouldn't be in this if we weren't. Yeah. And, and uh, our conviction on all of this is that um, this is what God wants. Mm -hmm. You've only got to read, you know, the scriptures. I mean, um, unity is another sign of the kingdom of God. It's another name for the kingdom of God. Uh -huh. uh, the kingdom of God, by the way, is, is Matthew, Mark and Luke language. Okay, um, um, John doesn't use that language. Uh -huh. John's gospel. Uh -huh. John uses the the language of love and of unity. Uh -huh. uh, if you look at Paul, he uses the language very much of unity, of the plan of God being fulfilled. Uh -huh. So, <clears throat> so I, I think we have to. Um, I, I think a, a, an essential element of, of of Christian faith is is unity. Now. Ultimately, it's about the unity of humankind. It's about the unity of creation. Uh -huh. And what the church is supposed to be is, is a sign, a foretaste of what this can look like. Uh -huh. um, an example to people that this, this, this way of living 
you know, with God is 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 good. So the the the, the division among the churches is really a countersign to what the kingdom of God is. So yeah. so we have to be convinced of that. Now to go back to the Lutherans, I mean. Um, I think the certainly the Lutherans I talk to say, you know, that's that's their great desire is that they be that there be unity. Now, I think in terms of the broader ecumenical movement, no one quite yet knows what unity will look like. Um, so you, you used a word there, which I don't know whether you consciously used, but you used the word "return to the Catholic Church." Okay, um, but that's not the Catholic Church's understanding of unity. Okay, um, it, it's the, it, it is the understanding of some people about what unity is. Uh-huh. But if if you look at the language the Catholic Church uses, I mean, the best example of this is <clears throat> the best quote you can use from this is Pope Benedict when he was in Cologne for World Youth Day and he spoke at the <clears throat> ecumenical gathering there, and he said it's it's not an ecumenism of return uh-huh, because these traditions have ways and means which have brought people to salvation. So it's it's a question of how you reconcile these things. Um, it's a question of um, how you uh, overcome the things that have divided you. Um, but it's not just a matter of sort of everyone's going to look like, I don't know, what Catholics look like today. And if you think of the Catholic Church, I mean, we can talk about Maronite Catholics, Melkite Catholics, Chaldean Catholics—they uh, all do things a bit differently. They have—they have different liturgies. They have different laws, even that they—they're they're bound by. So we're used to diversity in the Catholic Church. That's what we're about. Yeah. And and I think that the the question is how do churches which have you know moved away from the Catholic Church how, how do we arrive at full communion with each other now. Eucharist is not the biggest challenge, by the way. I think papacy is the biggest challenge. But, <laughs> but well, authority, the way authority is exercised. But but that becomes the the, the question, I think. And, and I think there's a, a commitment by, you know, Christian churches. And I'm, I talk, as I can talk here about main, what I might call mainstream Christian churches, uh, for, for that sort of unity. And I think there's, you know, the last... Well, certainly for the Catholic Church, you know, since the mid-60s, that commitment's been at work. But for many other churches, it goes back to 1910, you know, to the World Conference on, on Mission in Edinburgh. So that, that's the beginning of the modern ecumenical movement. Yeah, and us, in, in um, uh, what, 1999, there was, coming back, coming back to justification yes, briefly yes. as an example, um, in 1999 there was the Joint Direct de- de- Declaration. Declaration on Justification, yes. Um, and I was reading that yesterday... Uh, and in that, I sort of see uh, this. This might be unfair. Uh, a sort of a Catholic adoption of the um, of the Lutheran position, but also recognizing the the Catholic element within it. They, it's it's sort of bringing both of them together and saying they're both right mm-hmm. in a way that maintains the integrity of each individual idea mm-hmm. and. That seems to me like a really good example of how this sort of unity through diversity could come about. Yes. Um, when that came out, I was interviewed on one of those Sunday night radio programs once. And the, the, not 60 Minutes? No, 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 no. It was radio. Oh, radio. <laughs> <laughs> not 60 Minutes. It wasn't of that, that calibre. Right, right. It was one of these, not that high calibre. One of those re- religious programs that happened late on Sunday nights or used to. Um, and the opening question was... Um, Who's the winner and who's the loser? Yeah, right. And I said that's the wrong question. Yeah, <laughs> it's not about winners and losers. 
it's ultimately what it's about is how do we work out what the, the truth is and how do we find ways to express it? Because <clears throat> what, what has often happened is, is that um, there were things that created division originally, <coughs> pardon me, things that created division originally, and of course, um, as as time's gone on, the divergences have become greater and greater as we've caricatured what the other people said. Uh-huh. So um, one of the methods of dialogue is to say, when you say this, what do you mean? Uh-huh. What do I hear you saying? Uh-huh. And is that what you mean? And often it's not. Uh-huh. So often often you're much closer than you think you are. Uh-huh. That's one one as it were, method of dialogue. Another method is to say, we've got you know, problems with this. Let's go back to the beginning and let's see what the origins of this are. So let's go back to the scriptures and say, what, 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 what do we learn about justification in the scriptures? Mm-hmm. And let's also take account of what was the context that led to this dispute. And see if there are, if that context no longer exists, then maybe our suspicions of each other are no longer valid. Yeah, they become sort of unfounded on. That's right, yeah. 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 Because we've all changed. Yeah. Okay. N- n- no one stands still. So that all, always our church teaching is developing. I don't mean it's moving away from what it had, I mean the way we express it, we find, you know new ways to express it for the time in which we are, the time in which we live. More, more of an evolution rather than a, uh, a distinct change. Oh, that's right, yes. We're talking about, um, um, I, I mean, the best way to describe it is, um, you know, look, look at life. Uh-huh. You look a little bit different now to what you looked when you were six months old. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and, uh, but you're the same person. Mm. Mm-hmm. Coming, coming back to the, the substance <laughs> thing, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so, so you've been quite big, I guess, in the, in the ecumenical movement. Mm-hmm. And was there, a, was there a particular thing that drew you to that? Uh, was, was, there, was there an idea of sort of reconciliation or, or, or of a union in, in, in the churches that really sort of drew you in? Um, I, I suppose there are a couple of things which are quite different to each other. Um, and, 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 and also it's one of these things that maybe only recognise them later on. Um, so when I, when I um, was about to take up my doctoral studies, um, I was looking at you know what I could could work on, and uh, so this would have been um, mid nineteen eighties, and not long before that, in nineteen eighty two, in fact, the um, World Council of Churches Faith and Order Commission had produced a document on baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. Okay, um, and I'd um, I, I'd done a fair bit of work on Eucharist. It was a sort of an area of theology that I was interested in, and in fact, um, I spent one whole semester in my master's degree just looking at the Council of Trent and, and what it said about Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacrifice of the Mass. <clears throat> so Eucharist was something. So I wanted to to work with this this ecumenical text and and look at. You know what what was going on in that, um, and as I did that, um, I, I, I learned a whole lot more about um, Christian unity and its importance. Um, so that's one thing. Then, interestingly, and I only learned this when I, someone questioned me on it. When I when I eventually published my thesis, um, I, I, as you often do, have a dedication in the front of it. You see, so I dedicated it to my father. Um, who by that stage was 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 dead a few years, and um, someone said to me, "Was 
was your father a convert to Catholicism, was he? I said, oh, no, no, he wasn't at all. I said, he didn't, did nothing like that. I said, you know, he would have been baptised as a child, came from a <clears throat> you know, generation of generations of a Catholic family. So the question was, why did I dedicate it to him? Um, I mean, I, I sort of knew why I dedicated it to him. I said, oh, I said... My, my father was a you know businessman. He had a had a you know shop, um, not a huge shop, but a shop. And uh, so he he worked with it was a, like a grocer shop. You know he worked with all sorts of different people. Um, I mean all customers from all over the place. And there was a fairly strong housing commission area where his where his shop was. And um, and I remember he used to say to me, you know that. Um, or so and so, you know, they're not Catholic, but they're very good people. You see, and and uh, what he was trying to teach me was that. Um, Good people are not just Catholic people. I mean, there are some Catholic people who aren't good people, also, I guess. But uh, but there were there were wonderful people there. And uh, so what I learned from him, because I used to work in the shop during my school holidays and that sort of thing. What what I learned from him there was that um, you know there's there's something about the the unity of humankind which is really what it's about, uh -huh. and that our faith and our, our church connections somehow or other need to, to fit into that. So uh, he, he had this, this sense, and I think that's what that's, you know, I, I, I probably expressed it in a way that he wouldn't have expressed it, but, but I think that's what I was learning from him. So that, that, that sense of the importance of the, the differences, and we had, you know, family friends who were, you know, heavily involved in, in their own Christian church, not, not Catholic, who were exemplary people and, you know, great friends, and uh, we learnt from them, you know. And I think this is, by the way, another dimension of the whole ecumenical movement. This is the more recent phase of ecumenical dialogue is what can we learn from the other people? And that, that must be quite a, um ex exploratory but also like a great journey of dis discovery yeah, when yeah. you when you sort of find that element in the in the other mm -hmm. the other See, th th this is this is about saying um how can we do things better? Okay. And if we look at what some other people are doing, it's not a matter of saying, oh, you do that, we should do that too. But it's a matter of saying, hey, that's an interesting thing. I wonder how that would go in our church if we did this, this and this, and if we connected this to that. Uh, so um, it, it, it's, it's not simply saying that, you know, let's take over what everyone else is doing. But it's saying, you know, let's look at what other people are doing and say, what are they teaching us? And, you know, what, what, where we are now and what our church is and the, the challenges our church faces, what might we learn from that? Let me go back to justification. <clears throat> I said justifications. Catholics don't do justification. Huh? Lutherans do justification very well. But I think one of the things that came out of the Joint Declaration in terms of the stuff that people were writing afterwards is that's a 16th century problem that Luther's dealing with. Okay, what's the problem today? And how do we talk about and how do we make sense of the insights that Luther had there, which all of our Christian churches might be able to make use of? Uh -huh. um, I don't think... Now, if I was a Lutheran, I probably wouldn't say this, but I don't think that um, I, me talking about justification you know, every Sunday um, to the people who are there, or even you know, in more general terms um, to, 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 uh, to the society at large, will necessarily change people. Uh -huh. However, I do think that the insights that 
Luther had about justification, if we can find a way of talking about that to a world which maybe is hungry for God or hungry for something, is looking for meaning, um, asks questions, um, and is really saying, what's going to make me happy? Um, if we can find a way of talking about that, which captures the inside of Luther, that I don't have to prove myself. So um, to be, I suppose, concrete about this is that um, my worth is not, um, you know, gauged by, you know, the number of cars I have or the number of properties I have or the size of my salary, uh -huh. that I can be worthwhile if I'm, you know, a humble person. I mean, I can still be worthwhile if I have lots of cars and salaries and all that too. Um, but sometimes I can have those things and not be happy. And why not? So it's, it's a matter of – this is all about justification. Justification is really about what what do you see as the thing that makes you right and makes you at peace? And and would you see those those um, those aspects that those things that you're talking about? Someone someone wanting many cars. Do you see that as one of the big, um, I guess, problems with the world today, as opposed to the world that Luther was dealing with? Because Luther's see what Luther's world. People were worried there about they were going to die and what's going to happen to them. Yeah, and it was very sort of domineering and yeah. guilt-ridden. That's right. Guilt is what they're dealing with. That's what Luther's dealing with is guilt. Uh -huh. um, that's not our problem today, by the way. People aren't guilty about most things. Uh -huh. uh, and and nor, nor is eternal damnation a problem today. Most, yeah. pe most people don't they, think they about that. Thank the Lord dying. for that, yeah. <laughs> most people don't think about that. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Um, but... You know, one one of the the, the problems I think is is that the um, the Christian message, in terms of the popular the way it's perceived popularly, is only about that. It's still sort of stuck in that sort of language, whereas that's not even the gospel language. You see? Yeah, yeah. So so so, uh, you know, the the challenge for the justification document gave us, I think, is to say that. How do we how do we take this insight, which is a good insight, and talk about it in a in, a, in an idiom that we that the people of, of our world understand? How do you how do you talk to their needs? And that comes through that comes through just the the knowing that coming to God with a sort of a heart full of faith is all is enough yeah. to um, be of infinite worth. Yes, and it might be about you know taking pressure off yourself. If you if you think that way, you know you don't have to you know um, <clears throat> strive to to uh, um, you know to have the two or three cars or something. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I'm not saying there's not there's something wrong with having the two or three cars, but if if that's what defines who you are, and I, I think that's the you know, it, it, all of this becomes is what what is it that gives people their sense of identity and worth. Mm. I mean, it, it might be, it doesn't have to be two or three cars. It might be, uh, you know, um, academic achievement, <laughs> you know. So, so what what gives you your sense of worth? Uh -huh. Now, all of these things, by the way, contribute to that. Uh -huh. But ultimately, you know, what is it? And and it, it shouldn't be anything sort of external to you that gives you that sense of achievement, but rather just the fact that you are a person, you come with faith. Before yes. God, and then you... sure, uh, I'm going to now put my Catholic hat on <laughs> and say that 
that's sort of true, but that's very Lutheran, you see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so <clears throat> what I would also want to say is that um, the thing we also have to be very careful of, and I think this is one of the challenges that you know religion faces today in the sort of society we live in, the world we live in, is that it doesn't appear to be simply something which is otherworldly. Okay, what one of the one of the things, if you uh, what I would call the Catholic genius, uh, the Catholic genius is which goes back to our discussion about Eucharist. The Catholic genius is that we see um, the created world as being a mediator of God. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not simply that you know um, the rest of the. the the rest of the things that goes on in my life or in the world aren't important to how I experience God. It's really what, what goes on inside me. That's not the Catholic genius. The Catholic genius says that, um, you know, it, it's in my workplace, it's in my family, it's in my recreation places, it's in the encounters I have with you know, millions of people from week to week and year to year. That's where I can, that's where I can encounter God. And that's where I can feel God's care for me. Yeah, and that's where you can sort of act out God's love in in the in the relationship with people in in providing yeah, that sort of that, that charitable but you can service. Also, I think it's also a question of saying you know um, what 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 now taking time to recognise where God is revealing God's self to to, to you in in your day to day life because uh, because I think for a lot of people I mean the the classic example of this is if you ever get interviewed by you know a TV crew uh, and and they want to talk to you about religion um, you look you look at the TV images of this there's always either a crucifix a stained glass window or a a, a gothic cathedral behind them okay? um, <laughs> provide uh, all the uh, stereotypes that's yeah. right yeah. I mean it's great. The iconography is wonderful. It's great for, I suppose, and I understand why cameramen like that, you see. But I remember a, a friend of mine, a priest, once he was being interviewed and he refused to, to do that. He wanted to be in the garden and nothing else. And the, the guy said, he said, if I go back to, you know, my producer without those that iconography of the background, it won't be published. It won't, won't be go to air, you see. So, uh, so there's a perception there which is of what religion is about, uh, which is all about extracting it from life. Making it making it otherworldly. That's right. Yes, yes. yes. Whereas, if you look at, you know, Christianity. I mean, read the Gospels. Uh -huh. It's all happening in the countryside, in the fields, in the the, the vineyards, and you know, in in the, the 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 wedding banquets and wherever else it is. You know, beside the pools. Um, it's 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 about people who are blind and lame, and you know, um, caught in adultery and whatever else it is. That's where it is. Uh -huh. It's not in you know some churchy something somewhere. No, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't have churches. I think we need to do that because, but the question is how, how you connect those two worlds. I mean, the, the church is the place where you, you, you go, I think, to, uh, <clears throat> to be with God and to pray with uh, the Christian community, the people God gathers, uh, in order to be, to be nourished and strengthened uh, so that your witness in the world, because you, know, you live in the world most of the most of your time, your witness will be will be real. And and but also what you can do in the church is actually have time to recollect and see where God has been with you in the world. And in in that, so you, a lot of your studies been on on the Eucharist, mm -hmm. and flowing on from what what you're saying, I I've always seen that element as sort of the beauty of of um, the person and God of Jesus 
himself, mm-hmm. but also of the Eucharist becoming becoming the the body because it's it's the divine coming into the mundane, mm-hmm. and so. In that Catholic element, you go out into the day-to-day life and you engage, mm-hmm. you, you get on the bus, you mm-hmm. go to work, you have lunch, you do all those things mm-hmm. that are very day-to-day, but it's mm-hmm. finding that that spiritual and divine element within all those uh, what, what would otherwise be mundane mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. And, and you, so you've spent a lot of time uh, studying the Eucharist, but as a, as a priest, how do you take on the responsibility of bringing the Eucharist to the to your your parishioners. I guess broader question: What is your relationship to being that person that is bringing that um, symbolic but and meaningful action to bear in people's lives? Your your role basically is to lead people in prayer. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and the other thing which I think we we need to remember is is that um, we're there as the Christian community gathered by God. Mm-hmm. So the role of the priest is 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 very much as a member of the community. I'm still one of the community. I'm still one of the baptized. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm still praying with these people, but I'm also leading them. Um, and I and I think the thing about the Eucharist is that, that I, I'm aware that it also forms us as a people. I mean, I, I go back to uh, to Saint Augustine, you know, who, who uh, you know said to the people who'd just been baptized. He said he's trying to explain the mystery of the Eucharist to them, and he says, uh, "He's this is all, you know, many centuries before we get to <clears throat> to Lateran four or something." But <clears throat> he says, um, "You know, you 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 uh, you see the body of Christ on on the altar, um, and you come up and you you know." receive communion and the priest says the body of Christ and you say amen and he says let your amen be true so that you might be the body of Christ so that you're transformed by this so that you might live as the body of Christ you are now the body of Christ in the world and of course the body of Christ is another language we use for the church and that's Pauline language so so Paul has this he slips between the you know the human body of Christ the Eucharistic body of Christ and the ecclesial body of Christ um, so what I see myself doing in, in, in celebration of the Eucharist is very much part of what the Spirit is doing and, and uh, uh, calling on the Spirit to, uh, to, to transform not just the, the bread and wine into the body of Christ, but, but also the people who receive the body of Christ so that they might become what they receive. Um, and um, that means, I guess, that... Um, you know, there's something quite remarkable about about that in some ways. Um, you probably try not to think too, too much about <laughs> it in those terms, but but uh, um, but if this is what you know God's called you to do, so you, you, you're very much doing this as uh, as a um, as a service uh-huh, and as a minister of God. Uh-huh. Um, so there's a sense in which um, you're another one of this element of creation that is able to to mediate God and to help people experience God not that they're gonna I don't I don't see them as experiencing God in me uh, but I see that I can help them to to encounter God uh, and that's through the the whole of the the celebration not just the, the, the you know the <clears throat> the Eucharistic prayer I mean so it's help them to listen to the Word of God help them to see what it says to their lives.
Yeah. So you um, you, you mentioned uh, Augustine there, mm-hmm. and um, I suppose August, Augustine was big in in the early ideas of justification. Mm-hmm. Um, Luther was Augustinian. Well, yeah, and and but and and Augustine's, I suppose, rival in that regard was um, was Pelagius. Mm-hmm. Augustine, on the one hand, says that we come into the world um, with sin, and uh, he, he's and and we sort of can't escape that sin. Mm-hmm. And I think his his Latin phrase was. Um, Non non possum non non pecem. Uh, I I cannot not sin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, whereas um, Pelagius's idea is you you come into the world as sort of a neutral. And it seems that the the, the church has sort of the church has, has more adopted Augustine's idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you say that in the Eucharist you can become sort you can become that body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so you in some sense that's that's almost contradictory where you, where you maintain that sin that you almost can't escape from but you become an element of the body of Christ. How how does that <clears throat> contradiction well, <throat> sort of sort of sit with one another? I I think so we're talking about how we can call the church the body of Christ. Mhm. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about, okay? Yeah. Because if I say I'm the body of Christ, I'm only the body of Christ as a member of the body of Christ. I'm not the body of Christ, and you're not the body of Christ. Uh-huh. But the community is the body of Christ, the, the, the whole church community. That's the body of Christ. And it, we, it, to understand this, you've got to go back to, to Paul. So the body of Christ imagery in Paul gets used in two ways. So one way is to uh, to... to just simply identify the church and the body of Christ. The other way is to distinguish the head and the members. Okay, So what that's doing is creating a distinction between Christ and the church, whereas the other way is showing the, 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 the continuity or the unity between Christ and the church. So we have to juggle these two insights together, So that which goes to your question of, you know, Sinful people, sinful church, all of that sort of thing. That's precisely what it is. So, so um, let me go back to my language of sacrament again. So, a sacrament is a is the means which sort of unveils the mystery of God. So, what the 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 church is about, hopefully, is unveiling to the world the mystery of God. Now. One way you can look at this, I think, is to say that, yes, indeed, um, we can talk about sinful people and sinful actions in the church and all of that. <clears throat> so what, why be a church if we're like that? Okay. Now, what, one of the things, the, the, the central things, I think, about the whole mystery of Christ and the plan of God is that it's a, a mystery of uh, about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation. Or it's about justification. Okay. And... What what I think the, the 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 sinful members of the church can 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 demonstrate is that there is mercy from God, that we're not hopeless, our situation is not hopeless, and that in fact it's about showing there's a way to turn turn to God, and turn to turn to God and seek forgiveness rather than to uh, get caught in a spiral which sort of sucks us into to nothingness. Right, and it, and it's in that. Is it in that turning that we 
that we become more human or do we become closer to God or what's like where where do we go through that okay through that turn well i wouldn't distinguish becoming more human from becoming closer to god yeah okay what what the the the, 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 the you know thing about christianity is the incarnation that you know the word became flesh mm-hmm. that jesus is truly human and truly divine mm-hmm. now we can think of that as, you know, God came down to earth. Mm-hmm. But we can also think of that as, is that um, in Jesus we have the transformation of humanity. Mm-hmm. In other words, what we see in Jesus is what an authentic human life looks like and that's what we're all aspiring to. Mm-hmm. So to grow in faith, uh-huh, which if you like is growing closer to God, is actually to become more fully and truly human. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the do, do, doing this, I'm sort of looking into different religious ideas, mm-hmm. and um, one of the 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 questions that's sort of been formulating in my head is the extent to which religions are trying to do away with the human aspects of our nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so extending that out a bit, um, in if, if you take that Augustinian view where we are born with sin, mm-hmm. um, that, that sinful element is sort of the humanity from the separation of God. So in, in our birth, we have that sin because we, we become separated from God. Um, if you were to take, even if you were to take the, um, the view of Pelagius where we are born neutral. He then says that because of our free will, we're undoubtedly going to sin. And so at some point you will become a sinner. And I guess it's almost fair to say that once once a sinner, always a sinner, but you can achieve reconciliation. But your free will still enables you to, to go and sin again. And then in Islam, you, you have a sort of similar idea of um, the, the ideal person is in true and perfect submission to to Allah um, that was sort of manifested in, in Muhammad but everyone else um, apart from some of the earlier prophets Jesus included suffers from that um, inability to fully submit and then even in the, even in the Eastern traditions um, in in Hinduism it's your identity and individualism separated from God is an illusion but that separation is sort of almost what makes us individual and and human. Um, do you, I, I mean I, I'm I think it's I think it's a very unfair thing to say that religions are trying to sort of negate the human aspect, but in a in a Christian sense or maybe even just a Catholic sense, what what would you say against that against the, the notion that by living truly according to God's word, we perhaps do away with, with our free will, with our capacity to choice, to, to make choices, which is sort of the innate element of what makes us human. I, I think the, the thing that would characterise Christianity is that 
if it's properly understood, is that the last thing it is doing is trying to do away with our humanity. It's about redeeming our humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, th- th- this is this, this. You want to go back to the distinctions between, um, say, Luther and the Catholic Church, what, what, and, and Lutherans, I suppose, more generally, is that. Um, one of the events you can talk about is the fall. You know what I mean by the fall? So yeah. Adam and Eve and all that. Okay, so what happens there? Now, before I answer that, I need to say something else. What we have there is um, the creation of humankind, the whole of creation, but the creation of humankind without sin. So to say that um, our humanity is about our sinfulness is not really a, a Christian understanding, okay? So, because our humanity is actually not about our sinfulness. Our sinfulness happens, but we've got to deal with that. But, uh, but our humanity is about uh, something which is before our sinfulness. Now, the question became in terms of the way we interpret what happened at the fall. So, for for, for Lutherans, they would say that the the uh, the because we're made in the image and likeness of God, the image, if you like, is totally shattered. Whereas what the some of the patristic tradition is saying, and I think this you get this in the Catholic Church, is that um, the image is a bit, the, the idea is a bit more like a, a mirror, and we can't see the image of God because it's dirty and tarnished, and it needs to be cleaned up. Mm-hmm. And so, sinning would be akin to throwing mud against the mirror. Well, it is that, yes, but 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 um, um, the, the difference between Augustine and Pelagius, I think, is that that what Augustine said was that. Um, if you take that the mirror getting dirty, uh-huh. um, what what we can say is that God's the only one that can clean that mirror. Okay, what Pelagius would say is you can clean the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so. Um, but but the capacity to for the mirror to become clean is there. Regardless. Sure. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, Augustine is very big on free will. He's not denying free will, uh-huh. um, and we're totally free to to you know, respond to God as we wish. Mm-hmm. Um, the point about justification is that this this this, in some sense, is a, is a um, I suppose God's initial action mm-hmm. that 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 that. that uh, The action of, of Jesus in his death and resurrection has redeemed the world. And this is justification in, in, in personally comes by our, our being connected to that, mm-hmm. which happens through faith. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout our life, whether you're Lutheran or Catholic or anyone else, uh-huh, you have to make decisions about uh, um, how you're going to live. Mm-hmm. That's what human life's like. Uh-huh. And um, you should do that freely. Um, if you do it in any sort of um, way which you're under, under duress, um, there's something inauthentic about that action. Uh-huh. So, <clears throat> I mean, even the way the, the, the Catholic Church would officially define you know, mortal sin or grave sin uh, is that you have to freely consent to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so um, if uh, um, you know something's hap- someone's acting under duress, um, that's changing the nature of what they're doing. And so, changing the the act. Yeah, but the 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 capacity to um, 
make a conscious decision not to sin mm -hmm. definitely ex exists. Mm -hmm. But there's sort of that that underlying sin in in Augustine in Saint Augustine's view that that still exists. Ah, <coughs> pardon me. Now you're into one of the what was one of the sticking points that in the justification stuff from the Lutheran Catholic dialogue. Um, because Augustine has this phrase in Latin, simul justus et peccator. Uh -huh. So a person is at the same time both justified and a sinner. And um, the, the sticking point for the Catholic Church there was that that to them seemed to say that really you probably weren't fully justified if you're, if you're still a sinner. You're still carrying that sin. Um, what the, the language the Catholic Church would use is to say that um, what justification does is to remove that sin, uh -huh. but what remains is the language they use is concupiscence. Uh -huh. In other words, the capacity to sin is still there. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, so hence you get all these other doctrines around Mary, for example, who we like the Immaculate Conception, for example. That's dealing with that capacity to sin. So all of us have a capacity to sin, um, but what we also know is is that um, even after we've been justified, we have a capacity to sin. Um, we're going to need to rely on the grace of God to overcome the sin, that, the temptations that, that, that we have to deal with. Uh -huh. But we also know that um, um, there are, the, the mercy of God is such that um, when we do fall into sin, then um, he forgives. Yeah. So we, we remain that, that, we retain that capacity to, to be forgiven mm -hmm. regardless of uh, the, the, the simultaneous capacity to sin again, I suppose. That's right. I mean, I mean, no, no. no I think this is this is. Um, if 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 I say that um, I said much earlier that um, in Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, we have the world is is forgiven and redeemed, but this is still being worked out in history, and we're not yet at the end of that point. Mm. So throughout this whole period, we're still grappling with with uh, sinfulness, both personally, but also as a humanity, as as humankind, um, and. Um, the 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 the. I think a really important thing about Christianity is how we deal with that, which, by the way, is another problem in terms of how Christianity has its message in the world today, because um, the language of sin is not a language that most people are comfortable with. So, how, what what are we talking about when we talk about sin? Mm. You know. Yet, yet at the same time. People in the world today are very, very conscious of um, frailties and weaknesses and failures and uh, difficulties and challenges that they face. They want to call it sin, but they, but whether they can make a connection between that and and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, I think, is an interesting question. And and that would be and that would be one of the main distinctions between sort of our time now and Luther's time hmm. is that that that. The guilt that they were feeling that we were talking about before is sort of a result of that recognition of but that's sin. Right. The, 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 um, the language we use to talk about this is different uh -huh. because the, the worldview is different. Yeah. We're, we're not facing, um, I mean, 
What was the life expectancy in Luther's time? You get things like plague, fire, all those sorts of things. You know, they can wipe out whole populations. We, we as in, I mean, Australia, we, we don't face that very often. There are some people in the world who do, whose lives are very precarious. Um, and, um, you know, so we, we can talk, think about famine. So you think about the Horn of Africa and famine around there. We can think about, you know, violence and, and tribal clashes and that sort of thing. We can think about, um, you know, tsunamis and earthquakes and what have you. So there is something precarious about life, but we probably tend to like to think that there's not much precarious about it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Father, we're coming to the end of our time, um, but I would, if I may, just ask you one final question, um, and it's about sort of how you came to... Uh, to do your study of the Eucharist, because that's sort of been your main area of study. Would that be an area of study? An, an area of study. Not by anyone, but uh, why? Why? What? What drew you to that? To 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 that? As we've been talking about the Eucharist, what what sort of drew you to that? Um, to that particular area? Oh, well, I mean, it's. I suppose it's just been so central in Catholic life, hasn't it? Um, and also in my own life, you know. So um, um, just participation in the, the Eucharistic liturgy, the Mass, has been a, an important part of my life. So uh, um, to try and understand this better and to know it better and to, and I keep learning about it. So Realise what, okay. what you're becoming a part of. Yeah, but, that, <clears throat> but also there are dimensions of it that you know, you're, you're not even you know, thinking of and they're there, so... You suddenly become aware of them. You, you were talking before about uh, coming to know the Eucharist through faith, mm-hmm. um, but I suppose you've you've come to know the Eucharist through sort of an intellectual exercise. Oh yes, I've done that. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, but somehow, I mean, I think if you if you're doing theology, you you know, it's an Anselm described theology as faith seeking understanding. So this, you start with faith, and you're trying to understand. And I think that's what what theology is. You know, so I mean, and, and what what I've I suppose in terms of my theological work is, yes, I've certainly been interested in the Eucharist, but I've also been interested in the church, ecclesiology, and and the intersection of these two because there's a profound intersection between Eucharist and church. So uh, um, each informs how I understand the other as well. Now, that's part of my theological reflection. I'm not saying that's... Well, if you think about it, I suppose... I said earlier we should think about what God is doing in our lives. But if you think about it, um, it's probably fair to say that um, my life, and I suppose the life of many Catholic people, um, their life in the church is connected to their celebration of the Eucharist and their participation in the Eucharist. You know, that's, <clears throat> that's in a sense, the place where they, they go to be the church. Yeah, and become mm-hmm. become the, the body of Christ and, and sort of interact yeah, with it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's it's ten to, ten to five. Okay, mm-hmm. I think we've done done great. Um, okay. um, thank you very much for. That's all right. Um, it, is there is there anything else you you'd want to talk about? Oh, uh, yourself? That's probably enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could talk I, about a lot of things, but that's probably yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go, probably go for days, but yeah. Um, well, firstly, thank you very much for taking the time to right. um, mm-hmm. um, to chat with me this afternoon. Do you want to um, just your your work here at the Catholic Institute? Do you want to mm-hmm. just give us a quick rundown of what uh, the Institute's about and then and then what okay. you do here. So uh, the Catholic Institute of Sydney has has a long history, but not always by that name. 
So if you want to go back to the very origins of all of this, you've got to go back to the 18, late 1880s and the um, foundation of St Patrick's College at Manly by Cardinal Moran. We perhaps could go back a bit earlier and say that there were you know, other... Which, which was basically a, a seminary built to train people for the priesthood. Okay, so uh, um, that continued, um, and in 1954, the um, theological faculty there was uh, given permission by the Holy See, the Vatican, to uh, to award um, degrees in theology under the name of the Holy See. That's 1954, and. Then it, so it was called then, St. Patrick's College was the seminary, mm -hmm. and then you have what was called the, um, was it the, the Theological Faculty of Sydney, uh, Facultas Theologica Sydneyensis, I think is the way they put that. And uh, it changed its name probably in the mid-1970s um, to the Catholic Institute of Sydney, uh, still at Manly. And then in 1995, end of 1995, we moved from Manly to where we are now at Strathfield. Um, so a large part of our work is still about preparing people for, for priesthood. Um, so we have people from a number of dioceses here, but also for some religious orders as well. We all have people from for candidates for the permanent diaconate. Uh, and then we have a lot of other people who um, don't have any vocational connection in, in that particular direction. But uh, So some who would... Um, uh, look, be looking for something that might be some sort of work in the church, some pastoral worker somewhere. And uh, so some of our graduates have gone on to, to take up responsibilities in various church organisations and agencies. Um, I'd say a, a general rule would be that everyone who's come here usually comes because they what brings them here is they want to uh, deepen their faith. Um, so that often, you know, the, the lay people who come here, they don't come with a particular career in mind, but uh, they might find one by the time they get to the end of it, but they, they come to deepen their faith. So we have a, um, uh, our age range of our population is, um, you know, probably the, I don't know, the oldest person's probably in their, I don't know, 70s or something, and uh, there'll be people in their 20s, and we sort of go through all of that. Um, another characteristic, I think, is the... The cultural diversity of um, of our student body. So um, we'd have people from um, uh, South America, Central America, Africa, Asia, um, Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, Southern Europe. So uh, which makes it a very rich sort of thing. Um, which also means that people come here with different religious experience and different ways of praying and different forms of piety. Um, so it's a very Rich sort of a good place to build on your yeah, yeah, it's great, it's great. And and you were the the president here for. I was the president here for fourteen years, so that finished the beginning of last year. I ceased to be that. So I'm still here, but uh, that's remain a faculty member. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yes, yeah. I can devote my time to more teaching. Yeah, it's good and doing Some random research. things on the side like that's this. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, Father Kelly, thank you very much. You. And um, yeah, it's been it's been. A, Really interesting conversation. I think I think we covered a fair bit of ground. We did. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, th thank you. And, and Jack, um, thank you. And mm -hmm. hopefully hear from you soon.